0: Thank you for listening to our Love City Church podcast. Visit us online at www.lovecitychurch.ca. We pray that this message encourages you and strengthens you in your walk with Jesus. We're going to get right into it today, and we're just going to talk about uh, the, uh, the the story of Mary in Luke chapter one, and so. If you have your Bibles on the UVersion app, you can go there. All your notes are available to you there. I even added a little more notes because we're going to start using those for some of our life groups. People are going to be able to, uh, to kind of look through those. And But you can go on there. There's a lot more content there. I'm beginning to use that even more. So if you want to uh, download that app and, and go there, uh, please do. It's all there for you. You just got to make sure you save it to your profile or it'll disappear in four days. So we're going to keep going on this making room. And I'm going to jump right into Luke chapter 1. Verses uh, 26 to uh, 38. We're going to read this story together, kind of recapture the idea, and we're just going to get right into it here. And it says this. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. And you were to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And how will this be, Mary? Uh, Asked the angel. Since I am a virgin, and the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. If we try to understand uh, who Mary is, and if you try to do research on Mary, you'll find all sorts of uh, descriptions about who she is. The truth is the Bible actually doesn't give us very much historical uh, context for the life of Mary. We see her obviously in this story. She pops up several times throughout the Gospels. She was at the crucifixion with Christ. And in fact, the scripture identifies that she was actually on the day of Pentecost in the upper room with the disciples, which is a crazy thought to think that the mother of Jesus was standing when the Holy Spirit came down. She not only got to see Jesus come, but she got to see the Holy Spirit come. That's a crazy thought. Like that would be two days. I would love to be there. And Mary, if you look back, there's actually several different uh, uh, manuscripts that were written, different historical documents that were written that might give you a little more of an inclination of who Mary was. Uh, and one of them is the, 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 uh, the gospel of James, which was not included uh, as uh, in, in the Bible. It was considered to have, some of it was, was God thought and some of it was man thought. There was a mixture of a little bit of a, some tall tales, not that James is being uh, deceitful, but there was these uh, tales passed down for years and they would take their liberties to fabricate the story. And so uh, many people like to refer to documents like that to try to understand who Mary is. But the reality is is that we really can't know because I really believe the Bible is truly the authority on Mary. And. We, we begin to understand a few things about her. Obviously, she was from the small town of Nazareth, a, a small town of about sixteen hundred people. And this was such a small town; it wasn't even uh, mentioned in the Hebrew uh, the, the Hebrew Bible. It wasn't mentioned in any capacity, way, shape, or form. And they just kind of live. Among each other. They live life. They have a farm. They do their thing. They're not really involved in the politics. They're not maybe really involved in like a larger scope of things. They just have a a, a natural uh, kind of a a life where they just kind of live day to day. They pay their bills. They raise a family. They they, they build a farm and a home for their next generation. And that's this small town kind of area. In fact, the Bible says, actually, they wondered what good could come from little town of Nazareth. And she lived in this community kind of environment where probably two or three of her extended families all lived together. My my wife's family in Italy is like this. They have this compound and house they build on top of each other. They have four or three levels and houses. And they all share, you know, they share the different things in the middle. And they they share the bathrooms and share the, the different environments. And so they would kind of live in this communal living. And most likely Mary wasn't very educated. She most likely couldn't read. Because a lot of what they did was oral. They would remember things and they would recite things. And so it was all, they would talk about God and talk about the Torah and talk about the things of God. and, And they would kind of rehearse it orally, but they wouldn't, she wasn't actually able to read. She most likely spoke Aramaic with a little bit of a Galilean accent. She also heard many other languages. In fact, and some believe that she could actually speak three or four different languages. Greek when she was dealing with commerce and she would hear Hebrew when she was at the temple and she would hear hear Latin when the Roman soldiers would come into town and and kind of enforce the taxes. She would hear all these types of of different things. And you wonder what kind of class was Mary. Mary was the poor of the poor. 90% of the population paid almost 70% in taxes. They paid taxes to Rome. They paid taxes to Herod and they paid the temple tax they called it. The temple tax was the 10% actually 23% of their increase if not more went to the temple went to the church and so they were basically living on about 20 to 15% of their income. And so uh, Mary's dad was probably a carpenter, and then they had to start a farm to uh, make up for all the, the loss they had. And so she was very, very poor, most likely didn't have very many clothing, uh, probably had one outfit, maybe two. She didn't have a, a closet full of shoes, and you press a button, and they go, vroom, and all these shoes come out. She it was very poor and very lowly, and, and the reality is, is that she would spend most of her days for, for, for 10 hours a day, most common in Palestinian environments, even now today, 10 hours a day she would work doing chores around the home, taking water from the stream and create, uh, making meals. Ten hours a day, seven days a week she would work and work and work and work and she would spend her days doing the domestic chores. And she wasn't like a teenager of today. I mean, you see a 13-year-old girl, you know, 13-year-old girl today, you know, on her phone you know, getting like carpal tunnel. <laughs> she wasn't like that. Very uncommon to think you can't put Mary in the category of a 13 year old girl today. Mary was probably had quite the, the physique. She's probably a strong girl. I mean, this girl, well, you know, she was capable of walking the country of to the hill of Judea while pregnant, giving birth in a stable, making a four or five day journey on foot to Jerusalem once a year while sleeping out in the open underneath the stars like the, like the shepherds did. She daily worked labor, and she probably had kind of a robust physique. She wasn't this little gangly girl. She was probably, you know, she probably beat me up. I don't know. She just was a strong kind of girl. She was this woman who had fortitude and strength and she had lived so much life up to that point. And if you look at Mary's life, you realize Mary really had a really crazy life. At the age of 13, most women were married off uh, at the age of 13 in the Palestinian culture so that they could maximize their childbearing years and that they would be able to uh, live out their life bearing as many children as possible. And so most likely Mary was about 13 years old. She probably just went through puberty. But the reality is that when her and Joseph met, Joseph was much older than her. And so imagine being 13 years old and finding out by Gabriel the angel, not just some angel, God himself sent Gabriel the angel to the house. Being a 13-year-old girl, knowing that you're about to give birth, to a child and you've never been with a a man and not only is it just any child it's the son of god it's the messiah and you're about to carry the messiah the one who will die for the sins of the world the one who the whole world was created for this one moment imagine being there when your son is being brutally brutally beaten and tortured so much so that you don't recognize him until he's put on a cross and nails are driven through his hands and through his ankles, watching your son, the boy that you birthed, the boy that you raised, most likely by herself because Joseph was well in years. Mary lived quite the life. The question I have today, the question I begin to think about today, was why did God choose Mary? Why did God choose Mary? We live in a very uh, Catholic environment. Was, Was Mary divine? No. Was Mary a part of the Trinity? No, was Mary sinless? No, Mary was a woman, a person, a human, just like you and me just like Elijah was, just like Moses was, just like Ruth was, just like David was, just like Peter was and Paul was. They're all human. They're all men. They're all women. They're human just like you and me. There was nothing divine about Mary. She was a young 13-year-old girl. She wasn't uh, higher than most women. There's a a text in there that says she's blessed among women. That is actually not in the early context. The early manuscripts written in the Scripture that was later added uh, as a way to identify that Mary was something special when in reality, Mary, she's an incredible woman, but she's just like you and she's just like me. She's absolutely human. So my question is, why did God choose her? We actually see a very clear picture when, when the angel is talking to Mary, we see the Mary, Mary actually defines who Mary is in her greeting. It's very interesting because if you look at it, we don't know much about her, but we do know a lot from these two statements. And the scripture here in Luke 1.28 says, the angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. It doesn't say you will be highly favored. It doesn't say the Lord will be with you. The angel is identifying something about Mary's character at 13 years old the, the angel is basically saying, "I'm sent here by God. my goodness, I see something in you. I see something about who you are. I see something about your character. My goodness, God is." with you. God is all over you. God is all around you. Have you ever been around somebody who you know God is on them? I mean, I feel this way about Bassy. Every time I see Bassy, I think, man, God is on her. If you spend any time around Bassy, you'll feel like, oh my gosh, I'm a little intimidated by the fact that I think she walks daily with the Holy Spirit. Like, this is crazy. So that woman is an example of that, in my opinion. You just feel like God is on her. Like, oh my gosh. That's what the angel was saying to her. My goodness, there's a godliness about you. There's a, this, this kind of thing about you. God is on you. There's something about you. God's with you. And then he says this. You are highly favored. This is, I want to spend a, a chunk of time really uh, articulating what this little two words mean because what these words mean, I, I think you'll be surprised where we end up at the end of our time together when, when the angel said these two words to Mary. The the realities of what uh, the angel was saying is pretty unbelievable. He says that you are highly favored and that word has four definitions that I want to kind of define and we're going to land on the fourth one and stay with that thought but the first one is you're exceedingly joyful 13 year old girls today aren't often very exceedingly joyful and I pray that my daughter will be hallelujah sweetheart I love you she's in the back she's not feeling very good today so pray for her Uh, but uh, you know exceedingly joyful he came to the 13 year old girl and said my goodness, you are so exceedingly joyful there's a joy in your spirit the second definition here is that you are accepted. This is only this word that we're using today, highly favored, is only used two times in the New Testament. It's not the word grace, it's the sister word to grace. And so this word is actually only used twice. It's used in Ephesians as the word accepted. So you understand that God has made, done everything in your life that He needs to do to accept you. You don't need to do Anything else, you don't need to perform anymore, you don't need to be somebody else, you're exactly who you are right now. God has accepted you and you know it. The third thought here is that you are, it means agreeable. That, that you have a willing spirit, that you're willing to say, yes, Like I'm going to do that. Yes, you, you want me to go that direction. You want me to obey you. Yes, I'm going to follow you. Yes, I'm going to do that. And the fourth thought, which is the one we will rest on today, is the, the word grat- grat- gratified this is very interesting, the angel comes and says that you are highly favored and the word defined here is gratified or the word delighted or the word more specifically satisfied. That you have a satisfaction about you. The angel comes from God and he hasn't even gotten to the point of why He's supposed to talk to Mary. He hasn't even got into the meat and the good stuff yet. He just walks up to her and says, my goodness, God is all over you. I see why God sent me to you. God is all over you. And I see inside of your life, there is this satisfaction. This sense of delight. This sense of pleasure. The idea here is that is that you are enough, that you are satisfied, that you are filled to the brim, that you have satisfaction with what your life looks like. A 13-year-old girl being satisfied with her life sounds like an incredible, mysterious reality. This young girl at 13 years old, the angel came to her, this angelic being named Gabriel. I'm sure you've never had this experience with an angel quite like this. This woman was very special. She had something in her life that I believe that uh, Paul actually teaches us on. I believe that this idea that Paul or the angel came to Mary and said, You are highly favored, you are highly satisfied with your life, you're highly satisfied. I see in you that there is a great delight. I believe Paul actually later taught the church on what Mary was already living at the age of 13 years old, that Paul was now going to teach us. This is that you see that word and you think, wow, she's highly favored. She's blessed. Okay, let's stop for a moment. And Paul says, now I want to teach you what this looks like and how you can have this in your life too. And we jump to, the, uh, to later in the New Testament in the, the, the book of Philippians chapter 4. Verses 10 to 13, and it says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. So the church of Philippi had been a regular donor to Paul's ministry. Paul was a tent maker, but he also was like, uh, they supplemented a good majority of his income. And so the church of Philippi would regularly be giving their monthly to Paul. And so Paul was writing here to say, listen, I'm glad you renewed your concern for me because he was maybe thinking that maybe they weren't going to give any longer. But the reality is, is that the church of Philippi was either experiencing some money problems in their budget or they were also in a place where they couldn't get the money to Paul uh, because he was in an inaccessible place. So Paul was saying, listen, I want you to know, I am very, very thankful that you are so diligent in your generosity towards my ministry. Thank you so much, Paul says. Like, I want you to know I'm so thankful that you actually have renewed your concern. I want you to know that I'm very thankful for it. I really do need the money to, to do the ministry God's called us to do. So I'm very thankful for what you provided. But then in the next two verses, he adds a parenthesis. He adds a thought that is like kind of not to the point, but just to describe further what I mean by what I just said. Here's a parenthesis. Here's kind of an, another thought on what I just said. And this is what Paul says in verse 11 to 13. I just want you to know, I'm not saying thank you and and, 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 and thank you for giving to me because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. If I, I can do all this, all things, all of what I'm asked to do through him who gives me strength. Paul is near talking about this idea of contentment. And I believe he's about to teach us what Mary lived, what she the reason the angel chose her was because of this very thing that I believe you can have, especially in the Christmas season, in your life, right now. And Paul wanted to teach this, and he said, "Listen, I have learned this. Secret mystery. There's a a mystery. He's not referring to contentment meaning that it's fatalism, meaning that you're not supposed to have any motivation and you're not supposed to have any endeavors and goals. Just throw all those away. You're supposed to just, you know, every circumstance you face, you're supposed to just kind of go through it mindlessly. He's also not saying that you're not supposed to feel your circumstances, meaning that maybe you have a loss in your life or maybe you have a hope or a joy that you want to see fulfilled in your life. Paul is not saying that contentment means you shouldn't feel or experience what God is taking you through in your life. He's he's talking about something different. He's not talking about being numb to your circumstances. He's talking about you as an individual in the circumstances that you face in your life. This word here, content, is the word used. Content, content, is a very, very interesting word. The word here is broken up into two thoughts. The first word is autos. And that word autos actually means self, so your Self, no, not yourself, but yourself, yourself. You as a person, yourself, your, your, your thought processes, your, your inner being, yourself, yourself. And the second word here is, is the word archaeo. And the word archaeo actually actually means to raise a barrier, defense. It actually means self-defense. It means self-complacent. It means that there's a power of containing adequacy, a uh, capacity, a sufficient, enough, satisfactory, sufficient. And the interesting thing about this word is that this word actually, if you're not careful, without living in a relationship with Christ, this is what we do. We pursue contentment in ourselves. And it's very interesting because this word can be misunderstood. In fact, I don't know how many of you have seen this uh, documentary on Netflix. It is a, uh, an interesting documentary about uh, a man named Jim Carrey. I don't know if you've seen this, but Jim Carrey talked about a movie he did. And at the very end of the movie, I don't know if you can see this, you know, the, the, his eyes, but just look at his eyes for a minute. When I watch this documentary of Jim Carrey, now I'm fascinated with Jim Carrey. I'm fascinated. You go onto YouTube and type in Jim Carrey, and you'll see this man is about to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. He talked about how his entire life, Jim Carrey is one of the, the top four highest paid actors in the world. He's made millions and millions and millions of dollars. He's had the top-selling movies. So five of his movies were the top-selling movies in history. This guy has reached the apex, the top. You might say, really, Jim Carrey? And guess what, guys? He's a Canadian. There you go. Come on, just mark that up on your uh, Canadian hat, little pin. Jim Carrey, Woohoo! Justin Biebs, all right. At the very end of it, you see in his eyes, he says this. It's just about, he says, I tried my entire life. To, to find this happiness and it's all just worthless. He says, this, this doesn't exist. None of this exists, none of this is real. This is just metadata going through the back flute of our minds, we we are just in existence, we are just here. If you go onto YouTube and look, he's had other interviews where he's talked about this moment where he looks in the camera and says, you guys need to know that I've tried in everything in my ability, I've pursued the apex of the realities of this world, I've had everything, I, I don't even need anything else anymore and I am so unhappy, I am so broken, I am so hurting. He says, I loathe my existence He goes, I've tried to find that in myself. So many of us try to pursue contentment in our lives, even as followers of Jesus. Without Christ, we often do this and we feel like we're pursuing godly things when in reality, we're just trying to find satisfaction for ourselves. Amen. Paul actually didn't mean that thought when he wrote this. He actually meant in Philippians 4, But he says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Look, he says, I can do all things through Christ. And so now he's talking about, rather, it's Christ who who is the secret of Paul's contentment? The word implies through Christ I'm enough, through Christ I'm satisfied, through Christ I'm sufficient, through Christ I'm okay with the fact that I've been trying to have this child or I've been trying to have my marriage repaired or I've been trying to move forward in my business or I've been trying to know my dad and it just doesn't have that relationship. All these different things that you've been trying to do, now you say I'm going to do those things through Christ and now whether the thing gets rectified or not, whether there's reconciliation or not, whether or not I get that promotion or not, it doesn't really matter because if I'm doing it through Christ, through him I find strength. And that's where my satisfaction comes from. Paul is talking about this contentment and this reality that it's this perfect balance between overachievement and underachievement. It's this perfect balance between riches and being poor. It's this balance, it's this middle ground that I believe that Paul understood that in our circumstances that we face, there's a a, a temptation for us to either overachieve or there's a temptation for us to do nothing. And what Paul's trying to teach us is this middle ground. And this is what I believe Mary had this, this understanding of this middle ground called contentment. And What this does is this actually develops an agreeable spirit. One of the definitions of contentment is agreeable. So giving pleasure or contentment to the mind or the senses. So you have begin to have a spirit that says yes to God. You begin to say no to self. And yes, agreeable. I'm agreeable. Yes, I will stop thinking that way. Yes, I will stop acting like that. Yes, I will no longer be in that relationship. Yes, I will stop overachieving. Yes, I will stop overworking. Yes, I will stop trying to find pleasure in this thing and this thing and this thing when in reality it's just about me. I say yes to God and I say no to self. That agreeable spirit is what comes when we begin to do things through Christ. We see actually, Mary actually had this agreeable spirit. Luke one thirty eight. I am the Lord's servant. God, this angel just says, you're going to be with child, you're going you're to be Jesus, it's going to be the most high God, he's going to be sit on the, the, the throne of his father, David. I mean, what an incredible uh, prophetic word for Mary that you're going to like, basically like, I'm going to give you Jesus, like you're going to carry the Messiah, the one who's going to uh, usher in the coming uh, 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 of, of the, the, the his kingdom, like you are the conduit of that. And she says, okay, Lord, I agree, yes. Even though I know that I'm going to have to watch my baby boy m- uh, brutally murdered on a cross, and even though I know that I'm going to lose him at the age of 33. How would you like to know you're going to give birth to a child knowing they're going to die, knowing the time frame of their life? Mary's heart and her spirit was yes. Yes. But where did this agreeable spirit come from? Where does this, you notice he said that there's a, he learned the secret. Now, many of you would look at that word learn and think, oh, it took time. It was a season. You know, you gotta go through it and experience it. Actually, that word learn, it actually speaks to a specific moment. It's a, it's, a, it's a moment that happened in the life of Paul. It's a moment that happened in the life of Mary where there was a moment in their life where she made a decision, I will no longer live for myself, but I'm gonna live for the contentment and the satisfaction that only comes through Christ in every area of my life. And Paul actually showed us this moment. He referred to this moment. He spoke back about this moment in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. I'm going to read it in the Amplified Paraphrase or the Amplified Translation, which adds a bunch of stuff to it to help define the words a little bit better. He says this, Whatever former things I had that might have been gains to me, I have come to consider as one combined loss for Christ's sake. Yes, furthermore, I count everything. My wife, my kids, everything. My job, my business, everything. My addiction, the things I love, my video games, my movies, everything. My money, come on, not my money, not my savings account, not my retirement, everything. Paul says that I count everything as loss compared to the possession of the priceless privilege, the overwhelming preciousness of surpassing worth and the supreme advantage of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and of progressively becoming more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, of perceiving and recognizing and understanding him more fully and more clearly. That word, therefore, to, to, to consider, to count, that word is, is actually, though it's, it's the word, uh, it's a mathematical term, that that speed it says think about it and come to a conclusion So you basically look at your life, you basically look at your your reality, you basically look at your existence and you come to the conclusion that I can no longer continue my life living for myself. Like I cannot allow my marriage to be without Christ. I cannot allow my finances to be without Christ. I cannot allow my life any longer, my thought life, my heart, my physical reality, my relationships, I cannot allow this any longer without Christ. Christ, Christ has to be every piece, every point, every area of my life. Paul had that moment where he learned the secret of contentment. He thought about it and he considered it. This word counted was actually used only one other time in the Bible. It's in Acts uh, Acts 27 and the, the, the word in, in Acts 27 Uh, It actually refers to uh, uh, Paul was on a, a trip to Crete, and this is what he said to them. Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. Later down, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. So, when Paul says he considered it a loss, that word loss is the word zemia, it speaks to a business transaction gone wrong. And so what Paul did is Paul looked at his life, he looked at the situation specifically here, he looked at the boat and he could see that if I continue down this trajectory of my life, if I continue thinking like this, if I continue acting like this, if I continue behaving like this, if I continue engaging in these relationships like this, he can see that there's actually going to be a loss for my life. There's going to be a shipwreck. And you might find that there's some things in your life in this Christmas season that you've been engaging in. You say, Ryan, this is supposed to be a Christmas visit. What a perfect time to end the year saying, where in my life have I allowed damage to come into my life? Where is a potential shipwreck for the way that I think? How could my thinking shipwreck me? How could my relationship shipwreck me? How could my perspectives shipwreck me in 2018? I want to see it, take an evaluation of it, come to a moment of consideration, and make conclusion that I will no longer engage in this type of way in my life unless it is through Christ what Paul identified here is that this, this, he considered it all damage everything is damaging to my life on some level without Christ the truth is, is that he made a decision to lose everything and that's what he says in the scripture I chose to lose everything It's interesting because if you look at how Jesus defines the kingdom of heaven, He speaks about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew chapter 13 and says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure a man discovered in a field. In his excitement, he sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field and get the treasure too. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. He discovered it, a real bargain, a pearl of great value, and sold everything he owned to purchase it. That word owned there is actually the Greek word to have and to hold. Where have you heard that before? These men found things in our life that they were married to and they found something of such value they divorced these things from their life and said my only aim and my only goal my only framework my only capacity my only satisfaction is going to come through Christ I'm going to marry Christ I have and to hold I'm going to commit myself to him and it's interesting imagine being this man he was a maybe a wealthy businessman maybe he had a business in the, in the city and he came back into town and he walked up to the bank and said I want to give Give you the mortgage for I need money. And people are thinking, what are you doing? What are you, why are you changing this relationship? Why, when you were doing so well in your business, have you pulled back and changed your perspective? Why, when you used to act that way, have you, sh- what are you doing? Why are you doing this? You're crazy. Why are you now living so radically for this man named Jesus? Why are you doing this? He says, because I found something of such tremendous value that I want my entire life, my everything, to go through Christ, to be in Christ, to be about Christ. I want nothing in my life, no marriage, no relationship, nothing in my life to be anything but about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And through that, Paul's teaching that that is the secret to contentment. That is the secret to pure satisfaction. these men realized it was such a great treasure and I'm going to give everything. We often come to this place in our life. I've been here many times. Maybe you haven't been here or maybe you say I have been there in the past and I haven't been back. Maybe you've never been there. But you come to a crisis in your belief where you look at your life and realize, I don't know if you've ever had these moments, even sometimes in the context Of what I'm doing here I have to have a realignment maybe you're not like me and you're pastoring a church but you you know you work a job and you have a family and you come home after working 12 hours that day and you come home and unfortunately your kids are already in bed and you stand there at the entrance and you think to yourself what am I doing this all for like am I just like living my whole life for money is everything I do to wake up at 7 a.m. And, and to go to work and to come back at 7 p.m. And, and to go to bed and have the leftovers from dinner? and What's this for? What's the end game here? What's the result of my business? What's the result? My marriage. What's the result of all the things that I do with my life? I don't know if you've ever been here before, but I come to these crisis moments where I stop and I realize, oh my gosh, I've been investing into this relationship for three years, and I'm asking myself, why? What is it for? What's the value of this relationship? At times, it's damaging. That friendship's damaging to me and my personality and my my self esteem and it's my confidence. Or maybe, man, I've been giving myself to my business and to my work or my job. I don't even know why I'm doing what I'm doing. I just know that I have to do it. That is called a crisis in belief when you realize I think a part of me is actually living for self and I'm not living through Christ and what happens is is that you realize that the reason you're working the way that you're working is because you're not satisfied with life The reason you're doing what you're doing and spending like you're spending and having to go, 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 go is because you are not satisfied with this life and you have to to dampen and numb the feeling in your spirit and your mind that feels like, why am I even alive on this planet? What is the purpose for me being here? Why do I even exist? Is it literally just to do what I'm doing? Because if it is, it's not worth it. You will find that if your life is not lived through the secret of contentment, which is Jesus Christ, if every area of your life is not submitted to Christ, you will come to this crisis of belief in every area. And what we do is we often, we get a new job. We quit our job, we get a new job. We get a new relationship. We move to a new city. I did this for a while. I went from church to church to church looking for it. I went from place to place to place, job to job to job. Man, where am I gonna find it? The grass is always greener on the other side. Grass is greener, grass is greener. And you get there and realize, man, this is browner than the place I came from. Anybody ever been here before? We realize, man, every time I sense this, this longing in me, this, this drawing in me for something more, I just think, oh, I got to make a change. Oh, I got to make a change. Got to make a change. Got to do a job. Got to do this. Got to have a child. Got to go this. Got to go here. Got to, oh, oh, oh. And we start freaking out because our satisfaction is no longer there. And we make moves. One guy, I was walking in my neighborhood a few, a few years ago, and my neighbor rode by me on his bike. I don't talk to him very often. And we have a relationship, but not much. And he says, Ryan, you're a pastor, right? I said, yeah, I'm a pastor, yeah. said, gosh, I'm working my job for a really long time. I get paid tons of money. I just feel like I don't know why I'm doing it. I think I'm going to quit. I think I'm going to start a business. So he quit his job. Without his wife's permission, by the way. Ooh, boy. Just saw him this last weekend, and the, the business has failed. Now he's going to start another business. Now he has to get another job that he had before. My wife saw uh, their family and she just said, Ryan, they're fighting. Their marriage is in shambles. It's just they're, they're anxious and you can sense the fear. And it's because that's what we do. We shift. Whenever we feel like we're not satisfied, we shift. Whenever we're not satisfied, we shift. Whenever we're not satisfied, we shift. When all you have to do is stop and ask yourself, have this moment of consideration. Look at your life. What in my life am I trying to find satisfaction from? And realize that you will never find the satisfaction you're looking for through your relationship with your spouse. Your children can never give you the satisfaction that you're looking for. Your job will never give you the satisfaction you're looking for. Your relationships will never give you the satisfaction you're looking for. There is nothing, listen to my words, there is nothing on this planet that will ever satisfy you unless you're living in an intimate, raw, real, ongoing, progressive relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul was teaching us the secret of contentment, the secret of the middle ground, the secret of joy, the secret of peace, the secret of being okay, but I'm more than enough, that I make that much money or I'm experiencing that situation or I've wanted to have kids for years and it hasn't worked out and I don't know what that's like or you've lost someone or you're in a a broken relationship I haven't been in those shoes and I don't want to say I understand the emotion of that but all I know is that the one key, the one answer to satisfying the broken pain in your life is Jesus Christ I believe there's a lot of people here today who are professed followers of Jesus who go to church that don't have a progressive, ongoing, real, raw relationship with Jesus Christ. And just because you go to church and just because you read a scripture and just because you say you're a Christian does not mean that you're going to experience the satisfaction that Christ brings. You have to have a real, intimate relationship with him. The best part is, is that it just simply comes by belief and faith in your heart. There's simple faith. And Mary had this faith. Mary had this contentment. That's why God chose her. I want to end this morning as James comes and I want to read one last scripture here. I want to end the verse that Paul read where he says, for his sake, for for Christ's sake, I have lost everything and all those things that could damage me and consider it, All to be mere rubbish. Refuge dredge, actually the word, you might not like this, but that word rubbish is actually the same modern English word for what farmers call cow poop. The curse word that we wouldn't say in church. That's what Paul called everything else. It was actually an offensive word. When they read this, they were offended. The Church of Philippi was like, can he say that? Look what he says. Look at at the the result of contentment, the result of making Christ your aim this Christmas season. Look at this. Read it with me on the screen. In Philippians 3, 7 to 9. This is verse 8 and 9. And that I may actually be found and known as in him. Actually. Not having any self-achieved righteousness that can be called my own, Based on my obedience to the laws, demands, ritualistic uprightness, and supposed right standing with God, thus acquired, but possessing that genuine righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the right standing with God, which comes from God by his saving faith. Paul is saying here that, listen, the secret to experiencing contentment in your life is not more gifts, it's not even necessarily being with your family. The secret to contentment is stopping in this Christmas season and reevaluating your life. Come to that considering moment that Mary had to do and Paul had to do. Come to a place where you say, okay, is my life truly submitted to Christ? The scripture here says that when you do that, you actually gain Christ. You'll actually actually be, be, be known in him. You'll, you'll know yourself. You'll have identity. You'll have acceptance. You'll, you'll have joy. You'll have this overwhelming desire of uh, satisfaction and pleasure and delight in your life. The scripture says that when Mary, Mary recognized he, uh, when, when, the, when Mary recognized what the angel was saying, the angel came and says, you are highly favored of God. I want to pour out my grace on you. I want to pour out my mercy on you. I want to pour out my redemption on you. I want to pour out my grace on you. Everything you've ever wanted in your life, in the spiritual realm, I want to minister to you. I want to pour out on you. I want to give you joy where there was no joy. I want to give you hope where there was no hope. I want to give you faith where there was no faith. I want to give you life where there was no life. I want to give you all of these things simply because you stopped and said, Lord, I want my whole life to go through you. Don't waste this Christmas season on making about you. Let's make this Christmas season about making it about Jesus and every area of our life submitted to him. Amen. Come on, would you stand with me this morning? James is gonna lead us. Come on, Father, I just pray. As we respond today, Lord, I pray that you would identify during the worship time today, God, as we begin to worship and sing. Would you begin to drop little things in our heart, Lord? And this Christmas season, 2017, it was an amazing year, God, and we served you well. Lord, I pray we would be able to identify, okay, coming into 2018, Lord, we wanna serve you wholeheartedly, all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We love you and we worship you in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our Love City Church podcast. Visit us online at www.lovecitychurch.ca. We pray that this message encourages you and strengthens you in your walk with Jesus.